2: Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. After spending most of his life as a bully, Rudolph William Lewis Giuliani will go out as a coward when it takes the jury more than one day to decide how much money you owe the people you lied about, guess what? You're going to owe the people you lied about about $11 billion. Because guess what did not happen yesterday as testimony ended in the Ruby Freeman, Shay Moss, Rudy Giuliani case.
0: I was proven to be telling the truth and they were proven to be liars. Once again, that will happen. Uh, When I testify, we get the whole story and it will be definitively clear that what I said was true and that
2: whatever happened to them, which is it's unfortunate if other people overreacted, but everything I said about them is true. And Rudy never testified, must have been laryngitis (coughs) to defend him. Giuliani's attorney, Joe Sibley, basically had to force Giuliani not to testify and Sibley basically had to turn to an insanity plea. He compared Giuliani to a flat earther who will never believe the truth. His own client begged the jurors to remember that Giuliani did great things on 9-11. Spoiler alert, he didn't do great things on 9-11. Before the pyre had even started to die down, Rudy Giuliani was trying to leverage 2,000 dead New Yorkers, into an extra-constitutional extension of his term as mayor of the city of New York. The empathy thing? A politician reading the room and feigning that he cared. Funny Rudy missed the opportunity to go under oath and finally prove that Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss stole the election from his master, Dementia J. Trump, them and the dead president of Venezuela, and the Chinese, and I don't know, the Symbionese Liberation Army, and the National Football League Players Association. Funny, he said, nothing in his own defense, or to prove his case. Actually, it'll be funny if Freeman and Moss do not file a second defamation case against Giuliani for what he said after court adjourned the first two days of this past week. As to this case, the jury deliberated three and a half hours yesterday without telling Giuliani how much to make the check for. It has been quite the week for Trumpian cowardice, led by Trump himself, because if the whole Giuliani, this is my chance to prove to you I am right, the election was stolen and they lied about me, uh, I'm leaving because my grandmother is on fire thing. Sounds familiar. Trump did the same thing this week. He vowed to tell the truth under oath about the New York Business fraud judge and his clerk and the attorney general and, I don't know, the Bodder meinhof gang and the visiting nurse association, and then slight change of plans. Instead of having what Trump would call a Perry Mason moment, since it is the year 1966 and all, Trump turned out was not revealing all, telling all. He was skipping the rest of the trial. There are all kinds of terrible and even bigoted things that one might call what Giuliani and Trump did. But the worst things to call Giuliani and Trump are Giuliani and Trump. Cowardice was also on sale at popular prices throughout Trump land this week. In Atlanta yesterday, the letters of apology required for the plea deals for Trump 19-19. Confessed conspirators Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro were obtained through a Public Records Act motion by the Atlanta Journal Constitution, and Powell's videotape proffer may have been illuminating, but she and Chesbro spared the court and the citizens of Georgia and the United States of America any troublesome, complicated, or lengthy remorse. Quote I apologize to the citizens of the state of Georgia and of Fulton County for my involvement in count 15 of the indictment wrote kenny the cheese wow 23 whole words ken i've gotten fortune cookies longer than that still chesbro looked verbose by contrast to the kraken lady quote i apologize for my actions in connection with the events in coffee county 13 words must have been up all night editing that down huh sid you might say, so what? The apologies are insincere. The letters are formalities. And of course, Giuliani wasn't going to stick to his beliefs, no matter how crazy they were. And of course, Trump would back out or waddle out. Words don't count to him because he's allowed to lie whenever he needs to in both directions at the same time, because all of the rest of us are just extras in his movie, Dementia J. Trump's autobiographical history of the universe. But here, Listen carefully, because it'll be the first and probably the last time I do this, I will invoke and praise Jenna Ellis, who also had to write one of those Chesbro Powell apology letters and who, even if she still defines the lawyer representing themselves who has the fool for the client, she wrote 250 really painful words and had the guts or at least the strategic intelligence to sit there and read it herself to the judge on tape, complete with tears. And as much as I would like to think those tears were fake, they weren't. The importance of Giuliani and Trump wimping out is that it underscores that when the spit hits the fan, the bullies are the first to run. The lesson in this is simple. Hit them. Hit them every day. Hit them with every lawsuit, every indictment, every protest, every public mockery, every embarrassment, every joke. Hit them with everything you have every day for the rest of their lives. Because what Trump proved by not being in a New York courtroom Monday and what Giuliani proved by squirming at the defense table yesterday is that you can break them, both of them, maybe not all at once and maybe not permanently, but they cannot bullshit their way out of everything. People watching the movie classic Citizen Kane go to the dying Charles Foster Kane gurgling out his dying word rosebud as the quote from an eminently quotable film But for me, it has always been the scene in which the crooked politician Boss Geddes catches Kane in an apartment with a woman who is not his wife. And by the way, for context, this is in the pre-Moms for Liberty days when that wasn't okay even if your wife was also there. Geddes offers Kane a chance to withdraw from their race for governor of New York rather than subject his family to the subsequent scandal about the apartment and the woman who's not his wife. Cain screams threats about sending Gettys to sing, 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 Gettys. Gettys, presented by actor Ray Collins as the definition of the banality of evil, answers him flatly. You're the greatest fool I've ever known, Cain. If it was anybody else, I'd say what's going to happen to you would be a lesson to you. Only, you're going to need more than one lesson, and you're going to get more than one lesson. Still gives me chills. It should give Trump chills. More imminently, probably today, it should give Rudy Giuliani chills. It probably even would if either of them had any nerve endings left. They'll feel it later because we must make 2024 the year in which Trump and Giuliani and Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller and Kash Patel and all of them who need more than one lesson, we must make 2024 the year in which they get more than one lesson. By the way, before moving on to how much nobody cared about Vivek Ramaswamy in a CNN town hall Wednesday, to say nothing about volume three of the Charles Barkley Gale King Witness Relocation Hour, just to tie off that you're going to get more than one lesson quote from Citizen Kane for the benefit of one particular listener, Mr. Dementia J. Trump. I mentioned the actor who delivered that line portraying boss Jim W. Getty's. He was Ray Collins. And boy, has he never gotten the due he deserves. Just spectacular in Citizen Kane and in the other Orson Welles masterpiece, The Magnificent Ambersons. He played in the Wells radio event, still controversial to this day, War of the Worlds. He was unforgettable in Touch of Evil and in the best years of our lives, even in a bunch of soppy baseball pictures. But Ray Collins ended his career in a recurring role in a television series. He was the diligent but a little too boastful L.A. police flatfoot Lieutenant Arthur Tragg, who always got tripped up in cross-examination by the star of the show, the attorney Perry Mason. The one Trump keeps talking about. You're going to need more than one lesson, and you're going to get more than one lesson, Perry Mason. And that's true also for Vivek Ramaswamy and CNN. CNN. The town hall Wednesday night with the only man who might be able to outlie Trump in a battle to the death. And how I wish they would try that. Vivek Ramaswamy. The total number of viewers in primetime on CNN? 591,000. I mean, television news is dying. But it's not dying that fast. That's five episodes of this podcast. Whatever CNN thought it was gaining putting that paranoid manure salesman on, I can only guess. Ramaswamy even drew 31,000 fewer viewers than Ron DeSantis did on Tuesday. He drew fewer viewers than his lead-in Anderson Cooper did. 591,000 viewers. Good God, even Aaron Burnett had 659,000. And since we are on this subject, after Ramaswamy, right afterwards comes episode three, out of a complete series of three, of King Charles, Chris Licht's last and stupidest idea. 453,000 viewers for a news show in which Charles Barkley and Gail King talk about something, and it actually lost a quarter of Vivek Ramaswamy's invisible audience and King Charles is somehow down 10% from its disastrous launch ratings. Happily, and this brings us back to Trump and politics and a culture in which you don't like reality, just call it a liar. You want it to be day and it's night. You can just shout loudly enough that it really is day and you and only you can see the fact that it's day Barkley responded to his humiliating failure the first night of this show by blaming the ratings company. I want to tell my team, man, these Nielsen people are the biggest clowns in the world, he said. The ratings can't be right, he implied, because he doesn't know anybody with a Nielsen box. And you may recall when He was still interesting. Charles Barkley speculated about running for governor of Alabama as a Republican. Chuck, you're not good at this. Nobody's interested in you doing it, and you're not honest about it with yourself or anybody else. So let me ask you this. Do you own a shell company? Did you loan your own brother $200,000 and then he paid you back? And if so, could you still shout at the son of a president from the other party for having a shell company or at his father for loaning money? Chuck, if so, you would be perfect for today's GOP. Also, I wouldn't worry about having to tell your team anything for much longer. Some headlines. Trump has sold the rubes' rancid stakes and universities that didn't teach and magazines that didn't sell and airlines that didn't fly. But I have rarely seen him sell anything as hard, especially anything that literally does not exist, as this presidential immunity thing. He stumbled through a reference to a plea deal from the Supreme Court about it, whatever that means, and he posted and reposted and re-reposted the same rant yesterday on the important matter of presidential immunity something which is so basic to America that it should be automatic Trump does not say why it would be basic to America or why if it's so automatic and if it exists that the Supreme Court would not rule that he's right about it but he is selling this hard this underscores the fact that Trump has only to say it to validate it with his cult. I doubt anybody would bother, but I guarantee you, if you polled Dementia Jay's slaves, they would insist by 90 or 95 percent that, no, no, he had testified this week in the New York business fraud case. I saw him. And then, if he came out and said, no, he did not testify because he was being unfairly gagged, 90 or 95 percent would then say he had not testified. I do not know what to do about these people. I do know they are incompatible with a free society, with a representative form of government. And if it has to be that or them, it's going to have to be that. By the way, Trump lost again, this time before a three-judge state appeals panel in another attempt to overturn the gag order so he can resume trying to get judge arthur engeron's family and his clerk killed it is striking that amid more legal activity than the apocryphal law firm of engulf and devour trump has never once turned to america first legal stephen miller's supposed conservative counterpoint to the aclu it is now trying to find people who believe they were unfairly not hired because they were white and want to sue IBM. The Daily Beast now says in the year twenty twenty two, this nonprofit reported forty four million dollars in contributions. It spent thirty five million of that. Two million seven hundred thousand went to salaries, one and a half million was spent on lawsuits and other legal services. Thirty million. $30 million, 85% of its expenses went to advertising. Advertising that was mostly about things like Joe Biden. Even though, as a nonprofit, Stephen Miller's America First Legal is barred from participating in any political activity. Wait, so you're saying Stephen Miller is a con man and a fraud? Bending? if not flat out breaking the law and not just a paranoid hate monger whose dreams of ethnic cleansing in America are driven because a girl of Hispanic heritage humiliated him back in high school. Mr. Miller, you're going to need more than one lesson and you're going to get more than one lesson. And lastly, today, guess what's back. Oh, ghost buses.
0: Those buses were removed from the Union Station, and we're going to document all of that.
3: So you believe that those buses held undercover officers, not informants, correct?
0: I feel very, very confident that that everybody that was on those two buses were FBI assets, and I have a high degree of, of belief that they were actual FBI agents. And I, I'm I'm sorry to say, ma'am, my objective conclusion is that uh, is that senior officials at the at the FBI were deeply involved there.
2: Yes, Congressman Clay Higgins, disgraced former cop. In Opelousas City, Louisiana, interviewed by disgraced former 60 Minutes correspondent Lara Logan. A lot of disgrace, not a lot of functioning cortexes. So now the ghost buses are missing ghost buses. They're missing. That would make them ghost ghost buses. This interview, was on Lara Logan's streaming show, which literally, and I had to look at it four times to make sure this was not just my wishful thinking manifesting itself before my eyes. Her show literally starts with Lara Logan playing in traffic, and then a shot of her writing in pen in your ninth-grade composition class notebook, in big, loony-looking letters, the rest of the story. There is, however, one thing missing. Lara Logan's The Rest of the Story, with Crazy Clay Higgins, is missing a theme song. If I may suggest one, Oh, Nancy.
0: If there's something
2: parked at your insurrection, who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! Thank you, Nancy Faust! You know, it occurs to me if she had called the series Lara Logan Playing in Traffic... People might have watched. Also of interest here, just when you thought the Republican Party had reached some kind of apogee of cynicism and corruption in George Santos, wait till you see who they have lined up to run for the House seat. He had to resign in what passes for Republican shame. First hint, she's a registered Democrat. That's
0: next. This is Countdown. This is Countdown with Keith
2: Olbermann. This is Sports
0: Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is
2: Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports. <laughs> 8-line Los Angeles. Not all the heroes are actually great players. Gene Carr has died, and in some hockey circles, he is being mourned as if he were a Hall of Famer. The fourth pick in the NHL draft in 1971, he made the St. Louis Blues opening night roster as a 20-year-old with no professional experience, and he broke into the league as perhaps the fastest skating player of his generation. His father had played briefly in the NHL. Gene Carr's mother was a championship speed skater. In the NHL of 1971, not everybody was even a good skater, and almost nobody wore a helmet. So Gene Carr, young, blonde-haired, long-haired, going from end to end of the rink, his locks flowing behind him, looked like a superstar. 14 games into his NHL career, the New York Rangers traded four top prospects to St. Louis for him and Broadway welcomed Gene Carr as a hero. And in the next 139 games with the New York Rangers, Gene Carr scored 18 goals. That's not a lot. It became the subtext of games at Madison Square Garden. Gene Carr could skate from one net to the other in about four seconds. But if you gave him four minutes in front of the opposing net, he still could not score a goal. As the legendary New York-born referee and Rangers announcer Bill Chadwick once lamented, more in sympathy than in anger, Gene Carr couldn't put the puck in the ocean if he was standing on the pier. The Rangers eventually gave up and traded Gene Carr to the Los Angeles Kings in 1974. Still just 23 years old and playing in a totally no-pressure hockey environment, meaning there were about eh, 9,000 regular Kings fans in those days. Carr played well. He learned to fight a little bit. He scored 15 goals one season, and he fell in with the celebrity crowd. One day, he brought some friends to a Kings home game at the Fabulous Forum. His friends were the Eagles the eagles glenn fry and don henley and everybody and whatever else gene carr had or had not done when he died this week he will last as long as rock and roll does because if you've ever heard the eagles song new kid in town the new kid in town the guy they wrote that song about reportedly anyway was gene carr gene carr 79 career nhl goals And a number one hit on the charts was 72 years old. Thank you, Nancy Faust. Dateline Guilford, Connecticut, much in the same manner. Ken McKenzie became a star with the original New York Mets. The team lost 120 out of the 160 games it played in its first season of existence, 1962. But McKenzie, an unassuming, bespectacled left-handed reliever from Canada by way of Yale, won five games and lost four, which made him... The only one of the 17 pitchers on the 1962 Mets to finish with a winning record. In fact, the next year, he won three games and lost only one, making him the only pitcher on the 1963 Mets to finish with a winning record. In fact, no other Mets pitcher would have a winning record until 1965. Others suffered through the early years of the Mets. Ken McKenzie, later the baseball coach at Yale, then an alumni executive at the university, reveled in them. He made it to the Mets' 2022 old-timers day in a wheelchair. His license plate on his car read 1962 Met, and his humor was consistent for 60 years. At one point, somebody pointed out that he had the highest ERA on the team, to which McKenzie answered Yes but I have the lowest salary of anybody in the Yale class of 1956. Ken McKenzie died at his home yesterday morning. He was 89 years old. Tell to come on Countdown Fridays with Thurber and man versus machine with the machine reduced to the seemingly benign, but anything but benign, medicine cabinet, nine needles. Next. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger-effect specimens who constitute today's waste persons in the world standing on the pier. The bronze, the worse, Elon Musk. When your self-driving cars keep crashing, what do you do? Do you improve them? No, you do not. You try to prevent the government from telling people that they keep crashing. This is the kind of headline that could bankrupt a company, and it is live on the website of Ars Technica. Quote, Tesla claims California false advertising law violates First Amendment. Tesla fights DMV complaint that autopilot is falsely advertised as autonomous, unquote. Nice free speech advocacy, free speech boy. The runner-up, worse sir, Kevin McCarthy, the already ex-speaker, soon to be ex-Congressman, has decided he is in demand. McCarthy says he is open to serving in a Trump administration. I mean, why not? McCarthy has already proved to Trump his willingness to whore himself out for Trump. But of far greater interest, McCarthy tells Axios, he'd like to work with his pal, Elon Musk, in artificial intelligence. And once again, why not? I mean, when I think artificial, the first person who comes to mind is Kevin McCarthy. Intelligence? Eh, not so much. But our winner, the Republican leadership of Queens and Nassau counties in New York, These are the people who brought us George Santos, congressman at large in drag. Their new idea to run for the seat that Santos has just had to resign from in disgrace? They have nominated a county legislator with no public platform other than support for Israel. How does she feel about abortion? Nobody knows. Trump? Nobody knows. Democracy? Nobody knows. Anything else about President Biden, nobody knows. Her name is Mazie Malesa Pilip, and she was born in Ethiopia, and she served in the Israeli Defense Forces. She checks interesting boxes. She's black, she's a veteran, and there are a couple of drawbacks thrown in. She has a really difficult accent. She makes George Santos sound like a generic voiceover announcer, and her name is pronounced Mazie, but it's spelled m-a-z-i you know like nazi but with an m her only tenuous connection to congress is she campaigned alongside and called a quote amazing friend george santos oh and one more little detail the new republican candidate for the house ms Mazi Malesa pilip is a registered democrat Nassau and Queens County Republicans just nominated a Democrat for Congress. Hey, you know, Santos is hugely popular on that cameo thing. Think of his name recognition. Give him some time to cool off. Maybe we can run him again. The Nassau and Queens County leadership of the Republican Party. Today's worst persons in the world. Like Nazi, but with an M. Just ahead, Fridays with Thurber and a double header, including one of his fables, word for word, the funniest and most incisive stuff ever written. The city mouse goes to the country. Next, first time for more dogs you can help. Every dog has its day. In fact, nine dogs and 11 cats, nine ducks, two emus, three rabbits, a parrot, 24 silky chickens and 90 rescue chickens. They are at National Boxer Rescue in Pierce, Minnesota, and the county board there is about to vote to take the land away from them and close this rescue. They're $30,000 in debt with almost no donations coming in and no idea where the animals will go if they have to close. If you think placing rescue dogs is tough, imagine rescue chickens and rescue emus. And crazy as it sounds, many of them are special needs. Sounds crazy until you picture them, and then it sounds heartbreaking. Anyway, we can help. They have a fundraiser on Cuddly.com. I'll tweet out the link, or just go to Cuddly.com and type National Boxer in the search bar. The chickens thank you, the silky chickens thank you, the nine dogs thank you, and I thank you. To the number one story on the countdown, and it's Fridays with Thurber, and a lot of his work details the fundamental clash between people, husband and wife, he and various relatives, a guy in a bed and a seal, two animals representing any two humans in conflict. But some of the most magical writing is the stuff that is just about one person alone against life. One of his stories ends with a great-grandmother struggling with a butter churn and screaming into the void, Why doesn't somebody take this goddamn thing away from me? A line which I think could be the start of a national anthem somewhere. Such a story is Nine Needles, this week's selection. As you will see, it is a little short for our usual time frames here, so I'll give you a bonus, another man-versus-life story afterwards in the form of one of Thurber's fables for our time, The Mouse Who Went to the Country. But first, it's unlikely this event has ever happened to you, but the anxiety, that should be immediately familiar. Nine Needles by James Thurber. One of the more spectacular minor happenings of the past few years, which I am sorry that I missed, took place in the Columbus, Ohio, home of some friends of a friend of mine. It seems that a Mr. Albatross, while looking for something in his medicine cabinet one morning, discovered a bottle of a kind of patent medicine, which his wife had been taking for a stomach ailment. Now, Mr. Albatross is one of those apprehensive men who are afraid of patent medicines and of almost everything else some weeks before he had encountered a paragraph in a consumer's research bulletin which announced that this particular medicine was bad for you. He had thereupon ordered his wife to throw out what was left of her supply of the stuff and never buy any more. She had promised, and here now, was another bottle of the perilous liquid. Mr. Albatross, a man given to quick rages, shouted the conclusion of the story at my friend, "'I threw the bottle out the bathroom window!' and the medicine chest after it. It seems to me that must have been a spectacle worth going a long way to see. I am sure that many a husband has wanted to wrench the family medicine cabinet off the wall and throw it out the window, if only because the average medicine cabinet is so filled with mysterious bottles and unidentifiable objects of all kinds that it is a source of constant bewilderment and exasperation to the American male. Surely the British medicine cabinet and the French medicine cabinet and all the other medicine cabinets must be simpler and better ordered than ours. It may be that the American habit of saving everything and never throwing anything away, even empty bottles, causes the domestic medicine cabinet to become as cluttered in its small way as the American attic becomes cluttered in its major way. I have encountered few medicine cabinets in this country which were not packed jammed with something between 100 and and 200 different items, from dental floss to boracic acid, from razor blades to sodium perborate, from adhesive tape to coconut oil. Even the neatest wife will put off clearing out the medicine cabinet on the ground that she has something else to do that is more important at that moment, or more diverting. It was in the apartment of such a wife and her husband that I became enormously involved with a medicine cabinet one morning not long ago. I had spent the weekend with this couple. They live on East 10th Street near Fifth Avenue. Such a weekend as left me reluctant to rise up on Monday morning with bright and shining face and go to work. They got up and went to work, but I didn't. I didn't get up until about uh, 2.30 in the afternoon. I had my face all lathered for shaving and the washbowl was full of hot water when suddenly I cut myself with the razor. I cut my ear. Very few men cut their ears with razors, but I do possibly because I was taught the old Spenserian free wrist movements by my writing teacher in the grammar grades. The ear bleeds rather profusely when cut with a razor and is difficult to get at. More angry than hurt, I jerked open the door of the medicine cabinet to see if I could find a styptic pencil and out fell from the top shelf a little black paper packet containing nine needles, it seems that his wife kept a little paper packet containing nine needles on the top shelf of the medicine cabinet. The packet fell into the soapy water of the washbowl, where the paper rapidly disintegrated, leaving nine needles at large in the bowl. I was, naturally enough, not in the best condition, either physical or mental, to recover nine needles from a wash bowl. No gentleman who has lather on his face and whose ear is bleeding is in the best condition for anything, even something involving the handling of nine large blunt objects. It did not seem wise to me to pull the plug out of the washbowl and let the needles go down the drain. I had visions of clogging up the plumbing system of the house and also a vague fear of causing short circuits somehow or other. I know very little about electricity, and I don't want to have it explained to me. Finally, I groped very gently around the bowl and eventually had four of the needles in the palm of one hand and three in the palm of the other. Two, I couldn't find. If I had thought quickly and clearly, I wouldn't have done that. A lathered man whose ear is bleeding and who has four wet needles in one hand and three in the other may be said to have reached the lowest known point of human efficiency. There is nothing he can do but stand there. I tried transferring the needles in my left hand to the palm of my right hand, but I couldn't get them off my left hand. Wet needles cling to you. In the end, I wiped the needles off onto a bath towel which was hanging on a rod above the bathtub. It was the only towel that I could find. I had to dry my hands afterward on the bath mat. Then I tried to find the needles in the towel. Hunting for seven needles in a bath towel is the most tedious occupation I have ever engaged in. I could find only five of them. With the two that had been left in the bowl, that meant there were four needles in all missing. Two in the washbowl and two others lurking in the towel or lying in the bathtub under the towel? Frightful thoughts came to me of what might happen to anyone who used that towel or washed his face in the bowl or got into the tub if I didn't find the missing needles. Well, I didn't find them. I sat down on the edge of the tub to think, and I decided finally that the only thing to do was to wrap up the towel in a newspaper and take it away with me. I also decided to leave a note for my friends explaining as clearly as I could that I was afraid there were two needles in the bathtub and two needles in the washbowl and that they better be careful. I looked everywhere in the apartment, but I could not find a pencil or a pen or a typewriter. I could find pieces of paper, but nothing with which to write on them. I don't know what gave me the idea a movie I had seen perhaps, or a story I had read, but I suddenly thought of writing a message with lipstick. The wife might have an extra lipstick lying around, and if so, I concluded it would be in the medicine cabinet. I went back to the medicine cabinet, began poking around in it for a lipstick. I saw what I thought looked like the metal tip of one, and I got two fingers around it, began to pull gently. It was under a lot of things, Every object in the medicine cabinet began to slide. Bottles broke in the washbowl and on the floor. Red, brown, and white liquids spurted. Nail files, scissors, razor blades, and miscellaneous objects sang and clattered and tinkled. I was covered with perfume, peroxide, and cold cream. It took me half an hour to get all the debris all together in the middle of the bathroom floor. I made no attempt to put anything back in the medicine cabinet. I knew it would take a steadier hand than mine and a less shattered spirit. Before I went away, only partly shaved and abandoned the shambles, I left a note saying that I was afraid there were needles in the bathtub and the washbowl and that I had taken their towel and that I would call up and tell them everything. I wrote it in iodine with the end of a toothbrush. I have not yet called up, I am sorry to say. I have neither found the courage nor thought up the words to explain what happened. I suppose my friends believe that I deliberately smashed up their bathroom and stole their towel. I don't know for sure because they have not yet called me up either. Nine Needles by James Thurber. And as I suggested, in a broad sense on the same subject from his fables for our time and famous poems illustrated the mouse who went to the country by James Thurber. Once upon a Sunday, there was a city mouse who went to visit a country mouse. He hid away on a train the country mouse had told him to take only to find that on Sundays it did not stop at Beddington. Hence, the city mouse could not get off at Beddington and catch a bus for Seibert's Junction, where he was to be met by the country mouse. The city mouse, in fact, was carried on to Middleburg, where he waited three hours for a train to take him back. When he got back to Beddington, he found out that the last bus for Siebert's Junction had just left. So he ran and he ran and he ran, and he finally caught the bus and crept aboard only to find that it was not the bus for Seabridge Junction at all, but was going in the opposite direction, through Pell's Hollow and Grum, to a place called Wimberby. When the bus finally stopped, the city mouse got out into a heavy rain and found that there were no more buses that night going anywhere. To the hell with it, said the city mouse, and he walked back to the city. Moral? Stay where you are, you're sitting pretty. The Mouse Who Went to the Country, by James Thurber. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Do me a solid and tell everybody who doesn't listen to, to listen In fact, post it on your Facebook wall. I'm not on Facebook. I think that's part of the issue here. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully Studios at the Old Ribbon Broadcasting Empire in New York. There's a a video that I do every night promoting this thing. You could put that on your wall. Put that on your wall. Downtown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel arranged, produced, and performed most of our music. Mr. Chanel handled orchestration and keyboards. Mr. Ray was on guitars, bass, and drums, and it was produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including some of the Beethoven compositions, arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is courtesy ESPN Inc. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis. We call it the Olbermann theme from ESPN2. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Stevie Van Zandt. Everything else was pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 1074th day since dementia J. Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States use the insurrection act against him and them while we still can the next scheduled countdown is tuesday bulletins as the news warrants till then i'm keith olbermann good morning good afternoon good night and good luck Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.